Good morning. How are we doing? I, uh, <clears throat> I've been doing some studio recording for Ray Benson and Sleep at the Wheel, so I've had my voice manu- uh, lowered. No, I'm joking. I have a cold. Just got that. Just got that. Ray Benson, Sleep at the Wheel. Has anybody been a fan for their whole life? Please tell me. All right. Yeah. All right. So good morning. My name is Jason. I'm delighted to be here. I've been waiting on this day all week. Um, buckle up. There's a little seatbelt on the side of your gray seat. I'm just going to ask you to put that on because we're going to go for a ride today and you might need to uh, connect with your seat and just breathe a little bit. This is going to be a, an interesting and difficult conversation. And I wasn't really able to get through it at the 930 without kind of making a mess of it, but we're going to give it a shot since we practiced real hard at 930. Uh, This is the third part of a series that we're calling the isms related to Christianity. And what it is really is it's just a patient walk through um, some of the more difficult, sometimes almost embarrassing uh, chapters of Christian faith where things have grown so thick and so close to real gospel, but yet they weren't the real thing. And we've set that tone if you've not, if this is the first time you're popping into the series Go back a few podcasts and catch up. But there are some subjects, and I made this list hoping that uh, a couple of them would be removed by a fairy in the middle of the night, and it just hasn't happened. And so some of these subjects are so difficult to to talk about. They're so hard to hold space for. They're hard to explain. They're sad. They're sad to sit with. But if we're going to become the kind of community that, that, that we say we are, courageous and open, and willing to hold tension, then shrinking back from hard conversations is just not going to do. Denial and avoidance are just not going to work for us. They're just not going to work. So we're going to have to push through. We have to deal with things straight on, or else we run the risk, I think, of becoming permanently small inside. If we shrink back from hard conversations, I don't know if you had a grandmother that told you, don't frown because your face might get stuck like that. Well, she wasn't right, but the principle's right. You get what I'm saying? I feel like churches sometimes, because of their unwillingness to have hard conversations, become permanently small, and their voice becomes permanently quiet, and then they don't have much to say about anything because they're unwilling to take the risk to say things. So you know this by now, but ANC, we may not always be right, but we're not going to be silent. We're going to talk, right, Trey? We're just going to say stuff, even if we don't know how it's going to go. We're just going to say it. So this summer, we're... What's that? Who said amen? McLennan's back in the house. Thank you, Dr. McLennan. <laughs> Telling you what. This summer we're going to talk about um, the, the, the ideologies that grow in the garden of our, of our heart so close to the gospel that we can't see them. Now I'm just bringing up the, the analogies that we've been working with for a couple of weeks. But it's, it's amazing to me that the same soil that produces life-sustaining, life-transforming gospel also sustains some of the weirdest and scariest things. And we're so close we can't see them. Our kids will see them. But we have to do some work to figure out what those things are. It's, it's odd because sometimes the things that grow in our churches contradict the very fact that we're converted at all. And I wonder, what is the gospel trying to convert? Who is the gospel trying to convert? I can tell you I feel that target on a daily basis. So as Christians, we aren't the only ones who get these things wrong and build institutions around these kinds of evils. But we have some special explaining to do. Why? Because we claim that our only law is love. We claim that mercy and justice are our anthem. We claim that humility is supposed to be our posture in the world. So of all people to get this right, it should be us. It should be us. 
How do people who have just been set free turn around and enslave others? How do hurt people hurt people? How does this happen? How do we lose our way and allow hate and disdain and disrespect to find their way into the gardens of our hearts? Well, today we're going to talk about sexism in Christianity. And let me begin by saying this. Of all the isms, this one has a unique kind of sadness to me. You're talking about 50% of people who have, been, who have suffered uh, under, under this terrible ideology. It has a unique kind of sadness. Maybe because I'm raising five daughters. Maybe because I'm married to a very gifted leader who has a lot to say to the local church. Maybe it's because all my favorite authors seem to be feminists. I don't know how to explain that. <clears throat> Here's what I want to say. Belittling and overlooking the gifts of women in the church is criminal. And building a biblical rationale to support that is absolutely inexcusable. And yet, that's exactly what we have done. Take a breath. You're turning blue. Now you say you're just a liberal preacher. Women have it made in the church. Most of the church is made up of women around the world. Well, I'm just going to say it's easy to, if, if you're willing to come and sit and listen to men tell you what God thinks and, and what the church needs to look like. Yes, it's easy to be a woman in church. But if God has called you to lead or to preach or to write theology or to speak for the church or to correct the church or to steer Christian movements or to contribute in any of these ways, it has been anything but easy. It has been anything but an easy place to thrive and unfold. It's been a difficult journey. I'm talking to you. I'm talking to you today. The fact is churches are running behind most of society's institutions in seeing people as equals. We're somehow bringing up the tail to our own collective shame. I've struggled for weeks to find the right angle for this conversation. I've known it's coming. My first instinct was to shrink back. How, could, how can a white guy stand in this place both as perpetrator and as advocate? I don't know how to do that. And so I thought, well, I'm just going to wait until a girl can come along and preach it. <laughs> Makes sense to me. I'm aware that speaking for the other is one of the addictions of European white descendant men. And so some part of me just feels really reluctant to even have this conversation. So I thought I'd kick the can down the road until I get somebody else to preach it. And then Chris Ray, my kung fu therapist, said, what I need is, she's right here. She's laughing. It's not funny. <laughs> Do we need to show them what I mean by kung fu? Stand, Chris, and give a bow. I always talk about, come on, never mind, never mind. You always hear me talk about Chris Array. Chris Array is here today. <clears throat> she says, what I really need, if you want, to know, you want to know what I need, I need for someone to apologize. And all of a sudden, something took root in my heart. See, I've come to believe that there's a place for a male voice to initiate a kind of awakening, a kind of a collective waking up to our complicity and to our complacency. And that's my goal. But very soon after that, we're going to need to get in the back seat, guys. And we're going to need to let her drive for a while. And we're going to need to let her tell us what she needs, how she sees the world, what's missing. It's going to take a while for us to dig up out of the hole of several millennia of patriarchy. It's not going to happen overnight. And if I can play a role at all, it can be maybe initiating us into a kind of awareness. And then you'll see my hands come off the wheel. Now, it won't surprise you to hear me say this, that most, if not all, of our ancient texts that we consider the scriptures that drive our community was literally birthed in patriarchy. How could it have been otherwise? It won't surprise you that male authors and male perspectives and male worldviews are the ones that are preserved in our text. Women were valued slightly above livestock when most of our scripture was written. So we're going to have to do some work, right? Right? 
But somewhere buried in these ancient stories, I still believe there is a gospel that sets all souls free. And if change is what we're after, which is clearly what we're after, then it wouldn't be enough for me to tell you the story of Huldah, an Old Testament prophet who served in the southern kingdom when the two, Israel and Judah, were divided. We won't go into the history. It doesn't matter. It's 2,600 years ago. But when young Josiah was a king who stepped into the throne and he was hungry to know what God wanted, they found some scraps and shreds of an old manuscript in the temple of Solomon. And he wondered, could this be the voice of God? Could this be what the ancient text? And so he assembled his court and they all agreed that one person could substantiate whether or not this was the law that, that Moses had written down. And so she took her time and Huldah reemerged from silence and said, this is in fact the Deuteronomic law. One woman gave birth to a reform that gave us the Old Testament as we know it. There would have been no reason to preserve those scraps and shreds were it not for Huldah. I could tell you her story. You maybe have never heard it until today. But hearing her story wouldn't be enough. Likewise, if actual change is what we're after, building a new kind of world together, it wouldn't be enough to work through some of the, frankly, embarrassing texts in Corinthians and 1 Timothy, where Paul writes some very disparaging and limiting things to women in those churches. Even though Paul tells us that there's no more Jew or Gentile, there's no slave or free, there's no rich or poor, there's no male or female, even though he greets by name Junia, who was a woman until the King James decided that was scandalous, that a woman might be an apostle, we'll change her name to Junius, which is gender neutral. Even though Paul recognized dozens of women that pastored the flock of the young communities of faith, it's unlikely that more textual work in Paul will set us free. If you must know, I feel like many of those passages are highly granular. They're very specific to the context. These are housekeeping concerns of an apostle for the young and restless at the church of Corinth. Some of you got that. It's going back to the 80s. That's all I got, 80s game, that's all I got. But we ought to know together. We ought not be fooled so easily. We should know that a single text to a single church shouldn't counterbalance or shouldn't overweigh the, the, the movement of scripture which is to set all people free. There's no denying, though, that these texts have created sexism in the church with scriptural basis. And boy, don't question it. You'll be put in your place. Biblically sanctioned sexism, it's the most embarrassing thing that has grown in our garden. Women have always been as strong, as smart, as gifted, as intelligent, as everything as we are. It's just that our Bible got in the way. And we used it to liberate only half of the room. Even if I could reinterpret all of these texts in Paul with total egalitarianism, even if we spent weeks doing this work, it wouldn't be enough. Not for where we are. Even if I reminded you that many people in Jesus' inner circle, in fact, all of his benefactors that funded the public ministry of Jesus were women, even if I reminded you that he touched them, he approached them, he spoke to them in ways that made him unclean to the Jews, even if we did that, it wouldn't be enough. Even if I tore limb from limb, the teaching known as complementarianism, revealing for what it is, which is a fear-based, backhanded insult conceived in anger and self-protection and patriarchal minds that claims that you are happiest, dear woman, when you are an accessory to a man's leadership, even if I tore it limb from limb and put it to, put it to sleep once and for all. It wouldn't be enough. You know better than to accept that there are gendered buckets of talent. There are only people. There is only talent. Even still, it would fall short. You see, I believe there's no amount of textual work or biblical theology that we could do together to fix the injury that we have allowed and that we have caused. What's needed when it comes to, this, to the subject of sexism in the church is a good old-fashioned apology. 
So that's what we're going to do. For change to begin today, we're going to need to hear one another. Truly, undefended. We're going to need to let each person speak for themselves. We don't get to tell someone they've imagined that reality that is their reality. We're going to let each other speak from our own voice. No accusations are needed. No blame placement is needed. I'm talking about listening and grieving together a great damage that has been done and reclaiming together the real gospel that sets us all free. So with your permission as your pastor, we're not going to do any textual work today in the Bible. For the first time in the history of ever, Val says, what are your scriptural texts? I said, I haven't got any. Val's like, dot, 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 erase, dot, 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 erase, dot, 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 dot. You know how that goes, right? With your permission, I'm going to read an open letter of apology that I worked on this week with the help of a poet, a playwright, and a kung fu shrink. It gets better every service. <laughs> I need you to hear me, though, before we begin. Men, need you to hear me. Women, I'm not tearing down men in this room. That is not the goal of this. I actually think deep down, beyond all the cultural formation, beyond all of the, of the fear and the shame and the insecurity, I actually think you are good. I actually think you want to know how to love and nurture and hold space for tension. I actually think you know that it's the smaller version of us that has to squash what competes with our leadership. I actually think you are good deep down inside. But when the injury has occurred, you don't start by analyzing the fight. You apologize for wrongs done. So that's what we're going to do today. You got to start from the beginning. And so hear me, dear sweet sisters, mothers, daughters, grandmothers, wives, hear me. I am so sorry. I truly am sorry. I'm sorry for thinking of your emotions as untrustworthy and unwelcome in church leadership spaces. I'm sorry for making fun of your many words and your ability to spin a dozen plates simultaneously. What I should have said is I'm jealous that your brain can master it all at once. I'm sorry for diminishing your tears, for overlooking your wise intuition, for ignoring your warnings when harm was on your radar, but it wasn't on mine and I didn't believe it, for half listening when you unraveled your heart. That has a name. That's called ignorance. And that is not what God dreamt of. I'm sorry for allowing myself to be the center of your care and of your nurture while somehow neglecting to make you the center of mine. I'm sorry for the years I was complicit to the thinking that said, you're beautiful, your divine body was responsible for my wayward eyes and for my problem and my hunger that could not be contained. That's always been my work to do, not yours. I'm sorry for how that made you feel shameful. I'm sorry I thought that open office door policies and never ride in a car with someone of the opposite sex made me courageous and disciplined. That made you feel dangerous and shameful and dirty. And that has a name. That's called blame. That's not what God dreamt of. I'm sorry the church I love so much has done more perhaps than any other institution in society to wound you. We should have led with the gospel that sets free, but we failed. I'm sorry church still struggles to see you, to hear you, to understand you, and to value your priceless contribution. The truth is, you've led departments of ministry in churches where I have served, 
without the title, the authority, or the pay you deserved, even though those ministries would have crumbled without your oversight. I'm sorry that you've carried the local church on your back, on your volunteerism, on your ability to organize and execute without all that goes with that leadership title. This has a name. We call this exploitation. And this is not what God dreamt of. I'm sorry for explaining what you literally just said to men who could not hear you say it until I said it. You know what I'm talking about. I should have named that. I should have taken whatever sanction that little group of men would have dealt to me. I should have let you speak for yourself. I should have chastised them for not hearing, but I backed away. I'm sorry for actively dismissing your leadership, for passing you over for mentorship and for promotion and for being threatened when your ideas were better than mine. I'm sorry you grew up with no role model in churches, in, in, in the center of power. I'm sorry that no one looked like you who could show you how to lead from the middle of power and authority and influence. This has a title. This is called fear. And this is not what God dreamt of. I'm sorry organized church hurt you by the things it did and the things it didn't do. I'm sorry for remaining inactive, passive, unmoved, and unmotivated when you were being injured by the same systems that assumed that I was expert and I had a voice and I could speak with that voice that assumed that my loud, my public rant was prophetic and convicted when you used the same words, the same tone, and it looked at you as nagging and negative and emotionally volatile. But I'm mostly sorry that we made you feel ashamed for the gift God gave you to lead the church. The beautiful and important gift that we taught you to bury because we couldn't let a girl lead us. Church, this has a name. It's called insecurity. And this, dear friends, is not what God dreamt of. So I'm sorry, we have to do better. And we will. And I hope these words are healing to you in some, in some way. I'm sorry it took this long. I know you've been waiting. I pray that the men in your life can find ways to say these words to you in some way, loud and long, until you can internalize, till the shame can peel away, till you can speak for yourself you can show up when you need to show up. Now you may have noticed it's the weirdest sermon Jason's ever preached. We focus today mostly on the past. You say, no, preacher, preaching is about focusing on the future. Listen to me. We'll turn our time, attention to building a better future in, in the right time. But for now, I'm going to ask you to do this. Just hold tension for this. Just sit with the reality of this. There's no, there's no need to fix this. Sit with this. Connection begins with ownership. And when an injury has occurred, ownership begins with an apology. And so that's what I bring you today. It's time we claim all that God has given us. Every gift God has given us. I did a three-year in-depth leadership study for one of America's denominations, at the end of which their question was, where's the leadership pipeline? How come we can't find leaders to lead the church? And my conclusion was, they're right in front of you. But they're not men, and you can't see them. And I got fired. 
Here's my point. It's time we release every gift God has given us. Why does the church hobble and grovel and barely survive? We've not released the whole thing, guys. We've not released the whole thing. And I'm done. Now I'm done. Right now we're going to hear the same truth taught from a different angle, from a beautiful, different lens. Samantha Beach is one of our own that you probably don't know. She sits in the back, but she's an actor and a playwright and a writer and a voiceover artist. And she's graciously agreed to speak her truth to us today. And it's going to be a gift and you're going to enjoy it. And after that, I'm going to lead us in a liturgy of repentance that Mark has written for us. So sit tight. Hang on. Here we go. Do you know the parable about the servant who buried his gift? You know that one? It comes after the one with the boat and the animals, and it comes before the one with the cross. You know, the master who entrusted three servants with talents, and the talents might have been gifts or they might have been gold, and two servants ran off and made them into something greater. I don't know where those characters are. But one guy dug a hole for the thing he was given. If you didn't know that one, now you do. So this is the story about the man who buried his. This floor isn't dirt and digging won't actually do anything, and they probably didn't have wrapping paper in ancient Israel, but it's still that one where something gets buried. Except in this one, it's a woman. Sorry if that gets confusing. No, this is the one where she apologizes less. This is the one about the woman who buried her gift. It's a story about a woman from outside Chicago. It's a story about a woman who grew up in the church. It's one about a woman who keeps choosing rather painful shoes. This is the woman who got a gift and decided the best place for it was in the ground. But to bury the gift, she needed a shovel. She definitely didn't have a shovel. She lived in an apartment. The only shovel she could ever remember having was the one she used long ago to build castles at the beach. That shovel had been good to her. It would do just fine. So she went and borrowed a shovel from herself at age nine. She went back in time or something. This is a story where things like that can happen. So now, here she is with all that she needs to bury this gift when she hears a voice from behind. What are you doing? Said the voice of a girl who was nine. The girl had followed her back. The woman could have picked a more secretive spot, but this is the one where she didn't. I'm digging a hole. Why? For this gift. Why? To bury it. Why? Because. Why? Because. Because why? Could you just, why would you bury a present? The girl looked at her someday self like she was an alien. Someone gave you a present and you're not even going to open it? The woman looked at the girl who she used to be and said a thing she swore she'd never say. You'll understand when you're older. And would you believe it? In this story, the little girl proceeded to grab the present. No way. I'm opening it. The woman lunged. No, the girl held fast. A tug of war. This is the one where the little girl is way stronger. She says, look at my muscles. I'm fastest in my class. Her shoes look way more comfortable. And with her hair pulled back, she is free in a way that the woman forgot that her body could be. The girl makes a silly face. The woman is startled to remember she had ever been so expressive. The little girl is winning. You can tell she's used to it. She says what she means. Give it to me, please. And she says this so deep and so loud and so bold, the woman can't believe a voice like that had ever belonged to her. The girl says, come on, I want to show it to the Collins. Oh, this story has two Collins in it, Colin O and Colin S, the nine-year-old's best friends. 
The 29-year-old let go of the box. She had forgotten they were in her story. How are they, Colin O and Colin S? And the nine-year-old proceeded to tell the story of how many touchdowns the three of them had scored that day, how Colin O could pass it to her way down the field, how she almost always caught it, how Colin S was their team captain, how every day at recess they chose their teams, how they knew they'd play together every day, but how they made sure to choose each other every day anyway. This story made the woman who was older feel desperately homesick. The girl was off to see the Collins, and they showed each other everything. Colin S. had a new football, and the girl wanted to show him her gift, too. But this is not that story. This is the story about the woman who buries it. The woman said, you can't show this to anyone. The girl said, why not? The woman said, this gift is dangerous. The girl said, cool. The woman tries again. They might not want it, or they might pretend like they want it and never open it. Or they might like the idea of you having it and not know what to do with it. The girl says, but is it a good gift? It looks like a good gift. The woman says, yeah, I thought so. And the girl starts to head off to show Colin O. The woman panics. See, this is the story where she buries her gift, but this one comes after the one where it was rejected. And that one comes after the one where it was returned. The nine-year-old doesn't know the stories that led to this one, this decision to dig. How do you wind up in the story you're in? It wasn't all up to her. It was all always being written by other people, too. The girl must be stopped before she winds up in the one we've all heard before. They might destroy it, the woman calls after her. They did that once. You really will understand when you're older that gift is better in the ground than in pieces. The girl stops. She says, I'm sorry that they destroyed your other gift. She says, I'm so sorry that happened. The woman breathes. There has never been one where that has been said. They consider the gift. And the woman who is 29, the woman who is me, the woman I am now, who can't see down the road quite as much as she'd like, about to decide where to put her minutes and her might, her words, imagination, her ideas and real laugh, her hands, her high fives, her silly, if she can get it back, her competitiveness that makes people slightly uncomfortable, the way she can run when she's in shoes that are comfortable, her presence, leadership lists, all of her gifts, the woman who wants so badly to play on a team, but with a voice she left behind at nine, a woman who can't resurrect her nine-year-old mind now that she's heard all these ones with bad endings. And though she still loves the one who gives her these presents, what if she brings them to the very house of his presence only to discover that... How do you wind up in the story you're in? Could this be a story where it matters that I have this? Could this be one where someone holds it like it's holy? Could this story have more Collins in it? Or Ben's or Rob's or Dan's? Could this be one where they pass me the ball? Could it be one where I call for the ball? The good stories have great teams. The best ones have I see you's and I'm sorry's and we got this and you nailed that and we failed that and teammates that choose each other day after day. Could this be one of those? I thought this was a story about the woman who buried her gift. 
the nine-year-old said, in a smart-alecky way that only nine-year-olds can. The woman must remember to apologize to her mother later for being such an irritable child. <laughs> How did she wind up in this story? It wasn't all up to her. It was all always being written by other people, too. But she was carrying a shovel. And if you don't want to be in the one that takes place underground, you could ditch the shovel and step into the light. And this is that story, actually. This is that one. <laughs> 